everyone wants to talk about consolidation in the space, the biggest names, the big platforms, the product proliferation that's come along with it and saying, look, those big bullish bracket private equity firms are taking a bigger, bigger share of what it seems to be a consolidating market. We have a really hard time finding out the data. From McKinsey and Company, I'm Sean Brown and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Brian Vickery, a partner who leads our private markets research, setting us up for today's discussion on trends in private markets, some of which may actually surprise you. Our colleagues in the private equity and principal investors practice recently published a report highlighting a tough few years for the sector. Is that going to continue? That's what we're here to discuss and to find out. Brian is based in our Boston office and he serves real estate and private equity clients. He's also a host of a new podcast called Deal Volume, which takes an inside look at all things private markets. We'll include a link to the Deal Volume podcast in the show notes. Also joining us today is John Spivey, an associate partner in our Charlotte office. John co-leads our private markets research and serves private credit and private equity clients across a range of strategic and operational topics. So before we dive into what's next in private markets, let's take a moment to just talk about what's happened in recent years and where things now stand. Brian, can you share a little bit of uh, perspective on that? Thanks, Sean. John and I are very excited to have the conversation with you. We think about the last seven or eight years is really two eras. There's the era before the pandemic up and through 2019, where markets are moving along very smoothly. And then there's the era during the pandemic and through the last few years where things have been quite a bit different than they were before. The first thing we do say, we look at fundraising, right? Probably the key metric that the industry pays attention to, the driver of size over time and an indication of the health of the space. And prior to 2019, markets growing about 12% a year. And really in every single year after the global financial crisis, we have more and more and more fundraising, right? So LPs are continuing to add more dollars to the space. And every single year in the report that we write, we just talk about more capital coming in. The reason for that is they need higher returns. We think about the large pensions that are out there and the gap that's there between their liabilities and their assets, the target returns that they need to hit in order to be able to fund the liabilities that they have. And that gap creates a need for really strong returns. And they can't get that from the public markets, right? So you think about the, the regime that we've been in for a couple decades of interest rates that have come down and down and down. And the yield on the 10-year falling over and over and over and over again. And the last period, when we look at the, the decade prior to 2019, the average yield on a 10-year at 2.3% is insufficient for large limited partners to go into the public space or go into the debt space and meet the liabilities that they have through their investment performance. Right, The risk-free rates have just been too low to do so. That's been a major driver of why people have moved into the private space. Yeah, Brad, it's, it's, it's particularly I mean, a problem with the fixed income portfolios of these investors. Obviously, the public equity markets have performed pretty well over this period as well. A large portion of their asset allocation are on fixed income. And that's just been an anchor on their overall returns, pushing them more and more towards private markets. Totally agree with you, John. You know, so coming into the pandemic, backward-looking returns have been really strong, right? Every vintage year for many years running had beaten its public market equivalents, right? And we look at a 10-year trailing return in 2020 
180 basis points of outperformance. But the five years, the more recent past, like over 500 basis points of outperformance for dollars that went into private equity relative to those dollars that went into public spaces, right? So we think about that, the asset liability gap that pensions have, the high return threshold that they need in order to grow their monies to be able to meet their future liabilities, and that the incremental risk that LPs have chosen to take by moving into the private space and moving into private equity in large part in order to meet that liability. Really, prior to the pandemic, all of that was a good trade for public for for big pensions, for endowments and foundations, like putting more dollars into private equity has really worked out. Okay, thanks, Brian. And just to clarify the terminology for our listeners, GPs in this case uh, refers to general partners or the private equity firms themselves. And LPs are the limited partners. They're the investors who commit their capital to the GPs or the private equity firms. Okay, is there anything else that's uh, fueled this impressive growth in private market fundraising, Brian? So one might think that the, the assets that are growing and the the share of a portfolio that's being put to uh, into into private equity, into private real estate, to private markets overall was just a performance story. I put my dollars there, and those dollars grew faster than did uh, than than they would have in the public space. Which is true, except that in most private vehicles, distributions come at the end of a of a vehicle, right? So we send capital back. So recycling capital means that even though the performance has been stronger, actually the dollars within a vehicle are going to get sent back to the LP. And as you think about like, so what's actually driven this change in allocation over time, it's been the decision of limited partners to increase their targets, right? And overwhelmingly, it's been the decision of large LPs to increase their targets. We, we work with uh, CEM, it's a benchmarking firm in Toronto, and they've studied the allocation to private markets of the largest limited partners in the world. And then uh, many other limited partners that aren't quite as large. And both groups of, of LPs have been increasing their targets to the space, again, for the reasons that we... But it's the largest ones that have been the most aggressive in moving into the private spaces. right? And that change in allocation over time has meant that those very large capital allocators have, mo- have moved a ton of money into the private space. So the implication of limited partners changing their allocations, increasing their targets, increasing the dollars that they put into those is that the private space has grown many multiples that of the public space over time. The 20 years coming into the pandemic and dollars allocated to private equity, the total NAV dollars in the ground for private equity have grown nine times over the last 20 years. So just remarkable growth. And to put that in context, the public equity market cap, so all of the dollars and the value of what's in the public space globally, that number has grown about three times. Wow, that's a really striking difference. Is any of this outperformance related to where private equity invests? In other words, you know, the companies that they invest in. Part of this is an exposure story where we have new ways to get exposure in the private space that we didn't otherwise have. So we have the emerging markets, private equity in emerging markets that's grown, private equity into things like ESG funds have that opportunity has grown, growth equity as an asset class has grown very quickly. Venture capital has grown very quickly. So the dollars that are there have shifted in some ways, and the opportunity set has broadened for limited partners, but they have over time substantially increased the size of that total market relative to what's going on in the public space. 
And what about the, the, the recent trend of young companies staying private longer and therefore relying more on private markets for financing over a longer period of time? Has that also been a factor? Yeah, the, the trend over a longer, like the, that, the, the share of companies that go pu public oscillates over periods of time, right? But the, the, the broader long-term trend has been for companies to stay private longer. Now, part of that is a desire by management teams to stay pri private. Part of it is the amount of capital that's in the private space that's able to take a company from seed stage venture to growth equity to middle market buyout into the hands of one of the larger sponsors. And so many companies now go through three or four rounds or five, you know, up and through buyout before they've ever tapped the public market space. Right. And so that's been an evolution that I think has been both driven by the demand for the types of capital that managers would like to have or the, the, sorry, the, the executives would like to have and the owners of business would like to have, um, as well as the supply of capital that's able to, to purchase those companies. Got it. And so all that fundraising must have actually created an enormous amount of uh, what I believe is called dry powder, right? How quickly is that now being deployed? This is a headline number that the industry likes to talk about. We think about the upward or downward pressure on where we're going is how much capital have GPs raised that they have yet to deploy as an indicator of what the space is going to look like going forward, right? Since 2012, dry powder has grown every single year, uh, up and through the pandemic, right? Through 2019, right? From over the last five years coming into that, had grown about 14% a year, right? So the, the, the amount of capital that's sitting there that GPs control, right? Discretionary control with the ability to put it to work has grown very rapidly, much faster than has than has GDP or any other metric of economic growth. But at some point, the limited partners, the investors, must get impatient and say, "Hey, we're we've got our uh, our private equity firm sitting on too much dry powder." Are you seeing this pressure out there to do more deals as a result? Well, so yeah, I mean, everyone likes to talk about this on an absolute basis, right? And we agree that it's grown very quickly on an absolute basis, but on a relative basis, it's been somewhat steady even up and through 2019 so the the ratio of dry powder and if you think about the deal volume in the space right we, we talked about we started the conversation talking about fundraising and said look fundraising has grown at 14 percent per year over this five-year period right if i think about deal volume deal volume grew fairly substantially over that same time period but not as quickly so deal volume over over that five-year period is up about seven percent per year right so what that means is that for all of the dollars that are raised on a percentage basis, fewer are being put to work. And so we think about the ratio of deal volume and dry powder and think about that as, a, as an inventory that can buy the market, right? So all of the money that's out there, how many times can it buy an average year's worth of equity? And that number oscillates a little bit over time. But what we've seen over the, you know, coming into the pandemic is from the period that's 2014, 2015, up and through 2019, like that inventory number grows, but we've we reached an equilibrium at around 1.3 times. So all of the equity that's been raised can buy coming into the pandemic can buy the market 1.3 times, and actually that number has been was relatively steady for about three years. And so we'd say actually the market is growing somewhat consistently with that with that dry powder, meaning that the pressure on folks to do deals and the, the availability of those deals to be done, it has grown over time, but it hasn't shot up as quickly as the, as the, the headline number may indicate. The other thing to think about with that inventory growth, and like we, we think about it in two ways. One, 
it absolutely had grown, right? So we had higher inventories in 2019 coming into the pandemic than we had five years before, but it was relatively stable, right? But those higher inventories mean that there's pressure on pricing, right? More dollars trying to go after it on a relative basis, not as many deals. And so the implications there on how people think about the ability to get a deal done and the price that it takes to get a deal done are uh, are pretty substantial. So maybe I'll flip it to you, John, to just talk a little bit about how pricing evolved over the last several years. Right. So, I mean, essentially, if you look at this period that Ryan's been talking about from 2010 to 2019, it's it's been consistently characterized by rising multiples. And that's been true in both the public markets as well as in the private markets. So if I if you look at 2014, for instance, uh, your average global buy-up entry multiple was 9.8 times. That's grown by the end of the decade to 11.2. So about an additional turn and a half of price per EBITDA. The public markets have grown slightly less. So you've, you've had private market valuations that have caught up to publics to the tune of about a turn over that five-year period. And what this has meant to the private markets is that each successive vintage for the sponsors has been sold into a higher multiple environment. And that's been partially responsible, of course, for the stellar returns that private equity has produced in the past decade. It does, on the other hand, increase the onus on sponsors to find sources of return, whether that's earnings growth or leverage that, that don't rely on this multiple expansion as you buy higher higher multiples. So go ahead, Ryan. Yeah, I would just underscore that point, John. Like, I think it's really interesting coming into the pandemic in 2020 every single year every vintage year from the gfc onward if you bought a company and you sold it three or four years later any company you sold into a higher multiple environment than you bought right so it's just been a a constant and substantial tailwind for returns in the space for that entire decade you've also seen a lie with that increasing leverage over the course of the past decade Given that multiple valuation multiples were increasing over the past decade, the loan to value ratios of, of sponsor backed deals remained relatively constant. And given the interest environment, the the interest burden of higher and higher amounts of debt turned out to be quite manageable for sponsor backed businesses, given that the interest rates on on their on their debt burden were relatively low. But this is one way. Of course, that sponsors have looked to, to um, beyond the rising multiples to generate returns in their portfolio. And how much of this multiple dynamic has been driven by tech companies' valuations? Have you looked at what would happen to multiples if you remove the tech companies from the analysis? It's a, it's a great question. And we do look at this on a sector by sector basis. The, the numbers that we've been quoting here, of course, represent medians across the industry. Private equity activity, especially over the, the decade that we're referring to, was relatively concentrated in sectors like technology and healthcare, which tend to be higher in multiple sectors. And so if you separate those out, yes, you of course see a bit of an impact on a median multiple. I've seen various measures. It's not as dramatic as you might expect. It might bring the median down by a turn or so, but you, you've still seen the trend holds true. You do have a dynamic from year to year where sector composition impacts the overall headline multiple as well. The multiple phenomenon we've been talking about, of course, in private equity wasn't just a private equity phenomenon. It is true across the private markets, illustrated by, for instance, declining cap rates over the course of the decade as well. 
in real estate. And those cap rates, they pertain to real estate, right? How have the declines played out across that space? Yeah, when I think about cap rates, of course, we look at it by sector, but over the, over call it the decade coming into 2019, real compression across the space didn't matter if you're in office or in retail, industrial apartment. And um, over the last five years, a bit of a different regime where office and retail cap rates largely went flat or actually rose across the space as investors got more cautious about putting money to work in those sectors, the rise of e-commerce, changing in the ways of working, right? Impacting the future, uh, the potential for value in that space. Whereas industrial and apartments really separated themselves as cap rates continued to compress. So whereas we said in private equity, every vintage from the GFC sold into a higher multiple environment for those investing in industrial and multifamily buildings in the real estate space, the dynamic was largely the same, right? Cap rate compression over time being a big tailwind for returns. Thanks, Brian. Um, so this is a lot uh, to absorb here, but let's let's talk about how the sector has harnessed all this growth. What are the kinds of strategies that private equity firms have employed? First, you'll see a pretty consistent broadening of the product suite by GPs going all the way back to you know, the year 2000. So that, that has two main components. One, it's GPs expanding into new asset classes. So a legacy private equity GP may have expanded its product offering into real estate strategies or into private credit strategies and infrastructure strategies. You also have diversification of the product suite within the asset class itself. So then private equity, perhaps you initially were a flagship manager that had a single buyout fund. You may have over the course of the last decade or so diversified that product base to include a long dated fund, a growth equity fund, um, a sector specific target fund. And so what you see that dynamic generate is more and more that comes from so-called non-flagship products. So flagship being kind of the, the legacy primary fund that a, that a manager has launched and manages. It's oftentimes a private equity buyout fund. For the largest GPs, the largest 10 GPs over the past 20 years, the, the percentage of their fundraising that's come from non-flagship products has almost doubled from 25% in 2000 to approaching 50% by the end of the last decade. The other primary way that GPs have grown is within private equity by growing their, the size of their flagship fund. So there's a few factors that even within a given fund family can drive growth. You can grow the size of the fund, you can raise that fund more frequently, and then you can launch, as we mentioned, platform funds alongside it. But the primary driver of growth for, for GPs has actually been increasing the flagship fund size. If you just look back five years from 2021, so remember back to 2016, in private equity, average flagship fund size was two and a half billion. That increased by the end of 2021 to $4.6 billion. So it's come close to doubling over that period, accounting for the majority of the growth. A smaller portion of the growth, but still significant, has been driven by increased periodicity of those flagship fund raises. So previously, what you often would see is a flagship fund be raised and deployed over the course of, call it, four to five years. Um, and then the next successive um, flagship fund, you know, fund three, fund four, and so forth would be raised at that point in time. As deal activity picked up, as Brian talked about earlier, 
funds were deployed even more quickly. So going back to 2016, what the period between funds on average is five years, that's dropped to almost three years by, by the end of 2021. I, I would highlight, John, that like this conversation is about the most successful fundraising firms out there. So we're highlighting the 20 firms that have gained the most share. So if you thought of private markets more broadly as any, as you would think about any other industry, we looked at who's actually gained share over this period. So over the 2016 and the trailing five years, how much money did people raise? And then over the subsequent five years, how much money did individual institutions raise, right? And when we studied that, whereas, a pr whereas John previously talked about the growth for top 10 firms and the proliferation of their products, when you really look at who's actually taken share, the predominant drivers have actually been that that flagship product, how big it has gotten and how quickly it has come back to market, right? So kind of like in the sweet spot where LPs think a lot about proliferation of products, really where the, the folks that have gained the most share, you could argue the winners in the fundraising game, like those have predominantly come through through the flagship. Got it. And so is this pattern reflected in the number of companies that the funds are investing in going up? Or is it just that the average deal size is going up? Or is it a combination of both? It's a it's a mix by firm. I'd say the average deal size for these institutions has largely gone up along with their fund, fund size. There are certain players within that mix that have kept their individual deal relatively constant. And so therefore they've bought more companies over time. But it's that's really a more of a marginal effect. The bigger effect is in average deal size growing over time. And so given all this growth, has the number of players in the space increased significantly? Yes, yeah, so this has grown in a relatively steady clip, 10% from 2014 to 2019. As new investors basically enter the space, hug up their shingle, and started raising capital across private asset classes, private equity, private debt, and so forth. This impact, if you talk about it in the context of, okay, managers have raised more funds, they, their funds have got larger, but the fact that more and more managers been at the space have helped maintain constant industry structure, which was a surprising outcome for us. We expected to see consolidation in the industry when we run these numbers, but essentially you've seen a relatively consistent mar market structure as measured by the share of total fundraising captured by the largest firms. I think it's, this is a fascinating outcome for me in the research that we've done. We've been looking at this for several years now. The headline seems to be everyone wants to talk about consolidation in the space, the biggest names, the big platforms, the product proliferation that's come along with it and saying, look, those big bullish bracket private equity firms are taking a bigger, bigger share of what it seems to be a consolidating market. We have a really hard time finding out the data. Coming into the pandemic, we'd look back and say over a period of time. And so we study trailing five-year fundraising to say, how does that evolve over time? And, and that, of course, ought to be getting more concentrated if you believe in a concentrating industry. But the facts if private equity or private markets overall is just fundamentally fragmented. Very long tail of managers. We talked about 10% growth year over year. Every year, more and more firms coming into the space. You think about new company formation as you think about it in any other industry. And that new company formation in private markets has just been so robust over time that that tail continues to grow. And really, when we, the way we think about it is, look, if I took the top five firms in the space by fundraising, what share of fundraising do they collectively get in total? And how has that evolved? Like it, it was 9% in the trailing five years in 2019. It was 9% in the trailing 20 years in 2015. It was 9% in 2013. Like it's just been remarkably consistent how this industry structure has stayed 
over time, despite all of all of the the growth of some of the largest players that are out there. That's fascinating. Thank you both. Um, so steady, strong performance for more than a decade, and then just continued shocks. And the volatility seems to have gone up fairly substantially in this new environment. How has that volatility affected the conditions for private equity? The world in private equity also meaningfully impacted by all of the context of what's happening, right? Now we're in a period where we're in the highest inflation that we've seen since the 70s. The Fed aggressively raising rates to combat inflation. So the, the interest rate environment that we talked about, that really long-term tailwind for private markets, which was lower and lower interest rates, a bit more leverage on deals that created this substantial tailwind for the space. Well, those the, the rates the rate environment has changed substantially, right? The other thing to think about are labor markets. So a lot of the private equity firms with whom we work is they're thinking about the deals to be done. I was just thinking about the companies that they own. It's the ability to procure labor that makes those companies go. We're in one of the tightest labor markets that we've been in in many, many, many years. So we think about the implications for both the the market overall and the ability to manage companies. What one implication of all of these changes since you know starting in with the pandemic in 2020 is a a, a really different volatility environment. And so we look at the VIX going back over time and in the period coming the post GFC period coming into 2019. So we look at the 2012 starts a relatively benign period in volatility, right? The VIX at 50 averages 15 over the period up and through 2019. And then the pandemic happens. We have a really big spike of volatility, obviously in early 2020. So we'll try to figure out where we were headed, right? But the, that volatility regime has remained elevated. And since 2020, we averaged 24 on the VIX. So much, much more volatile environment for anybody that's investing capital. Private equity has been no different, right? With the private equity returns and the ability to generate positive returns over a very long period of time has been remarkable. So we think about in-year returns, so the equivalent of what might look like a time-weighted return of the S&P or any your favorite public index, right? The private equity in-year in returns have been consistently positive since the GFC, or the GFC being a major outlier in being the only negative year of the past of the past you know, 19 or 20 years. And then 2022, again, we have the second down year um, after two, two years of extraordinary performance. So we get both a really high performance in 2020 and 2021, and then we get on a relative for private equity, really low performance in 22. So the volatility that we've seen in public markets hasn't been mirrored in the private space, um, but but we we have seen quite a bit more in the last three years, and we've seen a long time. And and so, how big of an impact have the rising interest rates really had on private equity so far? Yeah, of course. I mean, everybody's been living this. But if you if you look at um, the impact on interest rates over the past year, you've had T bills come up roughly three hundred bips. Uh, the the measures often used in the public market to price loans of things. So for for instance, has risen by even more. And so we've gone from looking at interest rates of a and kind of the ability to earn an adequate return on an institutional investor's fixed income portfolio as a large tailwind to capital flowing into the private markets. Whereas we're now in an environment where reasonable returns may be earnable on a fixed income portfolio. And so there's there are questions, new questions being asked around what that means for longer term allocations 
to private markets since so many of them are being driven by a need to get returns above fixed income returns. If, if you look at, I mean, in terms of how it actually impacts the deal making in the private markets, if you look at the yields that are being charged on deal financing in private equity, for instance, they've gone up four or 500 basis points. That's been driven by a couple of factors. First, as I mentioned, the base rate so far has risen substantially. Second, you've also had spreads, particularly in the last six months or so, as bank and syndicated channels have shifted more to a risk-off posture, given the overall environment. Uh, you've had spreads widen for a given risk profile. And, and so the cost, of, the cost of financing deals has risen substantially over a relatively short period of time. In addition to that, financing has just become harder to come by. There is a very well-established and relatively large private credit industry now that has stepped into the void that has been you know, created by our more traditional financing channels. Deals are still getting done. Financing is still being placed on companies, of course. But the, the return calculus that sponsors are needing to do um, and the ability to finance their deals at a desired level of leverage has certainly changed over the past six months. You've also seen fundraising um, really fall meaningfully behind trend. So in private equity, for instance, if we go back to that 14 to 19 period that we talked about previously, fundraising was rowing year over year a pretty steady clip, about 14% per year. If you were to continue that trend from 2020 to 21 to 22, it would have resulted in about $800 billion in incremental fundraising coming into the industry that hasn't come into the industry. So you have the dip in 2020 um, associated with COVID. 2021 was actually the highest fundraising year ever. And then in 2022, market headwinds reasserted themselves. You had a bit of a drop off in private equity as well. But just to give a sense, I mean, $800 billion, a huge volume of capital that would have come into the industry had the trajectory of the last decade continued that just has it materialized. To me, that's a sorry, John. To me, to me, it's a remarkable stat, right? We we've coming into the pandemic, we talked about this fourteen percent growth, right? And then obviously, twenty twenty, we have fundraising challenges associated with the pandemic. Twenty twenty one is the is the highest year ever. And so we wrote when we wrote about twenty twenty one, we actually wrote about look this remarkable growth off the prior year and the highest number we've ever seen, and the market has bounced back. But even through this three year period that has been relatively robust on a historical perspective. Like we're still eight hundred billion dollars behind where behind where we would have been on the trajectory that we were on. So clearly, a very different environment for fundraising, even as successful as folks have been. Indeed, I would say eight hundred billion is a pretty big difference. Um, so, what do you think the implications are for deal prices then, if the patterns you're describing continue going forward? Well, I think the 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 deal market in twenty twenty one right, in particular, and going into 2022 was as robust as we've ever seen. And so we talked about earlier the inventories in the space was stabilizing at 1.3 during uh, during the period prior to 2019. Those inventories have actually been really volatile. The, so the impact on pricing coming into 2019, you know, John talked about that extra turn and a half where the public markets only, turn, only went up by a, a half a turn, right? Then, then 2020, we see a jump in pricing as those inventories really popped. And then that pricing number 
it went up about another turn and a half. That pricing number has actually been relatively stable over the last three years. So we see we reached some sort of new equilibrium in private market pricing in the public space. Really, really high volatility, and in multiple in the private space, not nearly as much. Right, actually, some downward pressure in the last year on pricing as the as the market really slowed down and became harder and harder to get deals done. How has this been playing out with the institutional investors that fund private equity? How they've responded to all of these really dramatic shifts that you're describing, especially recently? If you look at the, we often think about the prospect for capital flowing into these various asset classes based on where institutional investors sit in actual allocation relative to target allocation. And what you'll see if you look at it across different types of institutions, endowments, foundations, pension funds, and so forth, as well as across the various asset classes, private equity, real estate, private debt, you'll see that on the whole, institutions are still broadly under-allocated, i.e. short their own stated allocation targets into these asset classes. So what this is, in our point of view, is still a meaningful long-term tailwind to capital raising in the industry. There is some variance, of course, across things like private equity and private debt. Private equity has been at hardest by things like the denominator effect, where the decline in the public market valuations of an institutional investor's portfolio has made their private market allocation on a percentage basis look higher. And so they're, they all of a sudden were closer to their targets or even exceeded the targets relative to where they were a year ago. However, despite that impact, you still see broad under allocation. Notwithstanding everything I just said about private asset owners being largely under allocated to the industry, their willingness and plans to increase their target allocations to private equity has changed meaningfully over the past year as the environment has evolved. So more than a third of them last summer were planning on increasing their target allocation. That's now dropped to 13%. This is based on survey data. And so you, you do see the overall environment, the denominator effect, um, and kind of uncertainty around the industry more broadly, having impacted at least the short-term plans to allocate capital. Interesting. So have recent macroeconomic and industry trends also had a big impact on the sector composition of where the money is going? Think about, like we talked before about the industry structure and how that structure was remarkably consistent over time. 2022 is a completely different year. So John just talked about the denominator effect and the idea that LPs have, uh, have become over-allocated or become closer to their target allocation, at least in their private space based on where marks have gone, right? The implication of that is that LPs continue to re-up with the managers with whom they've been invested for a long time, right? No one wants to skip a vintage year for a manager that they 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 like. Um, for those managers trying to acquire new LPs, it was a much more difficult environment in 2022. And so we talked about the industry structure not changing over time, right? In 22, we saw meaningfully more concentrated allocations to the largest managers, right? The other thing to think about in 22, thing we talked about deal volume, Sean, you asked a question about, about uh, your, your question was about what it means for pricing, but really deal volume in 21, we had the most robust year we've ever had. In 22, if you look at the headline number, looks like a really robust year. But the trend as we come off of last year, where 
first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter, deal volume falling quarter over quarter and a pretty substantial change in the deal-making environment. So we look Q2, you know, one of the best quarters in deal volume, the fourth quarter down 42% off of that high. I think as we talk to folks are in the market today and the amount of the diligences that we're doing, right, we continue to see substantial softness in the market, harder to get financing, if financing being more, more expensive. And then the valuation component where bid-ask spreads continue to be wide and asset owners looking at where those values sit today and thinking if they can hold, right, they'll be able to sell into a better valuation environment in the future has really jammed up the deal-making environment and continues to sit largely in that same space today. So, you know, there's a lot here to digest and I invite everybody listening who'd like to dive deeper into all the numbers that you've discussed and their implications to really take the time to check out your private markets report. It's available on McKinsey.com and we'll also include a link to it in the show notes. So now let's change tracks. We've talked about the past and now the present, but what are some of the big trends you're seeing that set the stage for the industry's future? So the first of those is sustainability. GPs and LPs both have increasingly been focused on incorporating sustainability factors into the way that they do business. That's been manifested in a number of different ways. Increasingly, GPs will screen out potential firms that don't score well on sustainability-related factors. They'll incorporate more components of ESG risk or sustainability risk and sustainability value creation into their diligence and value creation processes. And then you've also seen the rise of dedicated sustainability vehicles, often called impact funds. That's the first of one of the two big kind of industry priorities, imperatives really that that go beyond the numbers. The second one is diversity and inclusion. Private market firms have really accelerated their efforts, largely at the at the push of the LPs, the asset owners for better performance on behalf of GPs to increase uh, racial and ethnic representation and increase the percentage of women in firms and and sitting in investment roles and senior roles. Across most of those metrics, private market investors still lag corporate America, but there has been recent progress and it's certainly an area that private markets are focused on. Thanks, John. And I believe we've got a report coming out that uh, we'll go into that in a little bit more detail. But right now, what about the conditions the industry is likely to face? I don't expect you to have a, a perfect crystal ball, but what are you anticipating based on your research? Brian, you want to take that one? So think, thinking about what's next, right, and where we're going from here, we, we, we're still meaningfully behind on fundraising. We're actually meaningfully ahead on deal making. Fundraising environment continues to be really tough. So big name brand managers out in the space were able to hit their targets and fundraise just as they had before. It might've been harder to do it, but they got it done. Now we're seeing managers that are an- announcing they've reduced their targets, right? So even name brand managers are out there saying it's harder to raise, harder to raise now than it was last year. And last year was a difficult environment, right? That denominator effect continues to be real, continues to weigh on folks' ability to fundraise. And John talked briefly about the LP's stated intent where a big driver in the space has been increasing targets. Like now a much the smallest percent in 10 years saying they have they intend to increase their targets going forward. So that denominator effect has is very real. Obviously, we continue to be in a higher financing cost environment. Difficult, more difficult to get leverage than it was a few years ago, more expensive leverage than you had for you know the decade prior to where we are now. 
and that continued uncertainty in valuation that's making the bid ask spread wider than it needs to be to to reinduce deal volume. Um, that's the short term effect. Medium and long term drivers, like John talked about, institutional investors remain underweight relative to targets, right? So this denominator effect put some people over target, moved many others closer to target, but. It's, we talked about the lag in timing and valuations. Like we do think there's a timing element to this more than a substantive overweight in the public into private markets that over time ought to iron itself out. And institutional investors are going to have to continue to put more money to work years ago. We know that we have three trillion of dry powder as we come into this space, and we know that we have a deeper secondaries market, which means there's more liquidity and more ability to move around relative to what was once there. So those continue to be tailwinds for getting deals done. And then the biggest opportunity that most large GPs are thinking about is the ability to go tap non-institutional capital, whether that's high net worth or from insurance players or DC retirement systems. Like that amount, the, the amount of dollars that are sitting there with the ability to move into private markets is massive. And the technology and services players that are helping enabling that space, there are sales forces that the GPs are building to go address the space. Like this is just an enormous opportunity. Thanks so much, Brian. That that sounds fascinating. And are you seeing any activity around Web3 and crowdfunding on that point with people now getting into private equity who maybe otherwise wouldn't have been able to? I, there, there's certainly a lot of conversation about Web3 and the the conversation there is on on liquidity, right? So you can take an asset like a property. So if you're in uh, in the real estate space, like can you securitize an individual building, right? Can you tokenize that building and then can you distribute so huge opportunity, not a lot being done there yet on the space. Um, crowdfunding, I think similar, like several crowdfunding platforms that have been around for for you know five or 10 years now, and the intent to be able to do direct deals in that space. And that has grown, but is, is still a small percentage of the capital. A couple of players now that are allowing high net worth or mass affluent players to invest through their feeder vehicles into private equity, that space has certainly grown you know, three or four players in that space that have grown relatively rapidly in the last few years and seemingly more and more players that want to get into that space and the GPs liking to work with those players to be able to access that pool. So that piece has been growing very quickly. Awesome. And last question before we wrap up, what are you both most excited about in terms of the industry's future and opportunities? There's an enormous amount of work to be done in sustainability investing and renewables and new energy Right. And that wave of capital where the biggest players in the space are now out there raising, John talked about it, but the biggest vehicles we've ever seen to go after this, right? That is, in my view, an incredible investment opportunity with the amount of dollars that need to be put to work there and the returns that those dollars are going to create and an incredibly impactful use of capital. And LPs are lining up behind that proposition. And so I think this is just a space where LPs, for, for the most part, want to participate in the space. GPs are enabling it and expanding what they can do there. And the dollars that they're going to put to work are, are going to be hugely impactful. Thanks, Brian. And John, you get the last word. Yeah. So I, I think the next six to nine months for me are, are going to be really interesting to see play out. Last year, basically, we only saw in the second half what the impact of higher interest rates, public market vol volatility, like these various drivers that we've talked about today, the impact that they're going to have on the private markets. I think we need a little bit longer runway to see how this plays out over the next six to nine months. I think private credit, where I spend a lot of my time, is going to be a really interesting dynamic area over the next several years. It is, um, I think, arguably where private equity was five or 10 years ago. 
and it has the potential to have a, a really sustained period of growth as it expands beyond financing kind of regular way corporate buyouts. John, Brian, thanks so much. This has been a fascinating conversation. Really appreciate you taking the time with us today. Thanks very much. Of course. And thank you to everybody who joined us for our podcast. You can find the full report that underpinned the discussion with John and Brian on McKinsey.com. It's titled McKinsey Global Private Markets Review. And we'll also include a link to the report in the show notes of today's episode. Please be sure to also listen to Brian's new podcast called Deal Volume. You can also find Deal Volume wherever you listen to your podcast. And of course, we'll also include a link to the podcast in our show notes. As always, if you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, just email us at ITSR at McKinsey.com. That stands for Inside the Strategy Room. You can also share ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast player with many thanks to everyone who's already done so. We really appreciate all your feedback and comments. Please keep them coming. And if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to subscribe, just follow our weekly series on your favorite podcast player. And that's where you can also access our entire library of more than 170 previous episodes. We also offer an Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page available at mckinsey.com slash ITSR. And that's where you can not only search our prior podcasts across six major themes, but also access written transcripts of all of those conversations. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest publications and insights, we encourage you to sign up on our Practice Insights page available at mckinsey.com slash SCF. Or you can follow us on X at MCK Strategy or connect with us on LinkedIn at the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week inside the Strategy Room.